You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. Amen, amen, amen. Now, before you're seated, I must confess, we need a miracle tonight. Um, because I've got to finish this series tonight. And I've only made it through five commandments. I know I write these series as I go. And so I don't always know the end from the beginning. And so, but it's Christmas season and I've got to finish this tonight. And how many know that Christmas time is, is the biggest concentration of miracles in the Bible and he can do it tonight. I don't know if I have faith. Somebody say in Jesus name, God bless you. You can be seated tonight anyway. Um, so I want to go to Exodus chapter number 20. Thank you for being here. If you've missed this series, I'd encourage you to go back, uh, not because I'm teaching it, but just because it's a powerful word of God. I cannot rehash for the sake of time this evening, but uh, we are looking at because I am, and this is a look at the Ten Commandments. Uh, I remind you tonight that it is a look. That, that's, uh, that means it's not an in-depth study, so that gives me license to go a little bit faster tonight. Uh, it's a look at the Ten Commandments, but we really want to catch the big idea. We want to understand how to look at this. I want you to be able to understand so that you can go back on your own accord then and sort of unfold it, unpack it, maybe bring its effect to your life a little bit closer. Closer. Largely in the context, if you missed everything else to this point, we're looking at the paradigmatic nature or the paradigms, what Christ was saying. Um, or what God was giving to through Moses to the children of Israel, and then what Christ comes later, we see primarily in the Sermon on the Mount, where he unfolds this force, unpacks it, he reveals to us the true original intent and heart of God, and it was the paradigm. It was, it was not just following the technicality. So I think we made enough, enough case on that. At Christ's time, when he comes to this earth, the Pharisees had reduced the observance of the law down literally to just the letter of the law. And in many ways they found, uh, in many cases they found ways to observe the letter of the law and therefore self-justify themselves, self-proclaim themselves as righteous. But in observing the letter by skirting the issue, they totally omitted the spirit of the law and became in all actuality great transgressors of the law. So what Christ brought to us was a contrast between the misinterpretation of the law and the true interpretation of the law. Christ was not destroying the law. He was not adding to the law. He was telling us the law as Psalm says, is perfect. And he was giving us that understanding. He was letting us know, as we'll see Paul would talk about, that the law was not just technical or carnal, but the law was intended to be spiritual as well. And so it, there was a spirit behind that. So we closed last week with verse 13 of Exodus 20, the shortest, uh, one of two of the shortest commandments, four words only, thou shalt not kill is the unnecessary taking of a life. We went through all of that and Christ expounded how 
The, the paradigm was not that you would take somebody and be so angry that you'd beat them up and bruise them and, and, and choke them to the point, but you wouldn't let them die. And so you could step back and say, okay, I'm okay. I didn't, I didn't offend the letter of the law, but he said, no, in all actuality, he says, it's what happens in your heart. It's what happens in your heart. You could have a hatred. You could call somebody a fool. Before we go to commandment number seven, let me highlight that Christ prescription to us for thou shalt not kill was interesting in Matthew chapter 5 go with me to Matthew chapter number 5 verses 23 Matthew 5 and 23 he's already said that I say whoever's angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger but look at what he says in verse 23 here's his prescription for the unfolding of the commandment thou shalt not kill he says, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and remember that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. Watch this. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. He goes on and says, agree with thy adversary quickly. I, I could un. Uh, or I could explain that a little bit more. Let me just focus on 23 and 24. And this, th this is the point I'd like to make that Christ's prescription for observing the spirit of thou shalt not kill includes resolving issues, resolving issues. So when there's issues in your relationship, God, many times in the New Testament, we see this not only in the Gospels, we see it in the epistles, the apostles. If, if you have an offense against somebody, go to them, make it right. If somebody has an offense against you, he says, go to them and make it right. It doesn't matter what situation you find yourself in. The prescription is go to them and make it right. Resolve it. So his prescription for thou shalt not kill, interestingly enough, is on the extreme. He says, if somebody has aught against you, you may have nothing to do with them. You, you, you're not bothered by them. But if they have aught against you, he warns us, go to them, resolve it, make it right. Let there be an understanding. Let's be, be quick to apologize. That's what he means when he says, agree with thy adversary quickly be quick when that adversary comes and says something say you know what I'm so sorry I'm, I'm sorry that that I, I spoke in a way that you were able to misunderstand I'm sorry I, maybe I intended it maybe I didn't but forgive me I'm sorry but here his prescription is go to the person that has ought against you why because if you're not willing to deal with it and resolve it at this point wait till they do something towards you then you're going to want to kill them you may not do it in the letter of the law, but in the spirit of the law, you would. So here Christ gives to us a perfect case of how we are to understand the paradigm of the law. They understood it in the New Testament. Well, we're not killing, so we're okay. And he says, no, you are some of the greatest offenders of the law. While you stand there and you're righteous, you spew hatred towards Rome. You spew hatred towards your own brothers, towards the own people, towards the Sadducees, toward other things. He's calling out the scribes and the Pharisees. We could go down this thread. Um, 
We could continue on that with that, but we won't because this, this would lead us to all relationships uh, and how to resolve that and forgiveness and unforgiveness. All of that stems from this one law in the Ten Commandments when he reduced everything down to the Ten Commandments. If you will just obey the spirit of the law, thou shalt not kill. He said, it's going to help you in your relationships. This revealing by Christ of commandment six gives us light to understand the rest of them even more quickly. So I hope I've taken enough time with that so you could understand what he's saying. Let's go to verse number 14. In Exodus chapter number 20, we'll go to verse number 14. And we're sort of going to jump back and forth on these two because Christ again tells us what this means. But we go here and he says this simply, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, the Pharisees had taken it down again to the letter of the law. I don't have time tonight to go into how corrupt they had made the law at that time. But if you're just going to be able to take my word for it, by that time, they were able, men were able to divorce their wives over anything. And the prescription for divorce in the Old Testament was not adultery. There was a penalty for adultery. But the prescription for divorce in the Old Testament was that if she was not what she claimed to be when you married her, if she was ceremonially unclean, if there was something that was going on that was found out later, the man then was allowed. It was not God's design, but the man then was allowed to go and ask God's, Jesus said, out of the stubbornness of your hearts to ask for a bill of divorcement. And that bill of divorcement was for, uh, for the protection of the woman because if he just put her out and put her away, she could be accused of adultery. She could then be stoned unjustly. She could uh, be destitute. But that bill enabled her to be able to be remarried. It was for the protection of the woman. By the New Testament time, they'd come up with anything, pretty much any excuse, uh, uh, any unsatisfying reason that they had, they were permitting themselves to go and get a bill for divorce. This was a gross perversion of what God's intention was because the original law was not just about prohibiting the act of sex with someone in particular, but this was about the preservation of the purity of the household. There was something sacred in that covenant, the covenant of marriage, by the way, marriage predates, the concept of marriage predates the Mosaic law. Marriage is more than just a civil law. What marriage was for, marriage was the joining of two people who became one flesh. In Genesis, we see it. God said, for this cause shall a man leave his mother and father, and these two shall be one flesh. There is something that takes place in this. It's more than just a sacrament. It's more than a civil uh, uh, ceremony. There is something 
spiritual that happens when a man and a woman are married. Paul testified to this because he says when you are joined to a harlot, he said there is a spiritual connection. And he said, so you shouldn't be joined with a harlot. He said, but you should be joined to God. He was using that same analogy, that truth, letting us know that when we are in covenant with God, there is more than just a, an agreement that I have. Uh, my relationship with God is more than just a get out of jail free card or I can call his name whenever I'm sick or in an accident. No, his spirit and my spirit, there's a fusion. There's something that takes place. His spirit, we become one and his spirit is in me. That's a powerful thing. And so what God was giving to Moses in this was the defense and the purity of this household family unit called marriage. It was the basis, the family unit was the basis of all life. It was the basis of, of, of their foundations and structures of all society. The family unit was how everything operated in the national life of the people of Israel. Sometimes when you read the Old Testament uh, uh, from a Western eye, we can think, oh man, it seems like uh, men are highlighted and women aren't highlighted. And we don't realize how radical what Moses did, how radical, and I say Moses, what God did through Moses, the law, how radical it was for that day and age. It elevated men and women together. We don't see all that in the text, and I'm not here to pull all of that out. But in their national life, everything was built upon the family unit, upon marriage, upon husband and wife. And if that broke down, everything broke down. Now, while the law elevated the position of women, by the way, you were not, uh, you were a citizen of Israel. You were a natural born citizen of Israel by who your mother was. It was the mother that determined whether or not you were, uh, uh later on what we'd say a Jew or whether you were of, um, uh, Israel lineage. It was not the father. It was the mother. There's a lot of things in the law that we miss that we don't see how much it was elevating the status of women. And there was, a, there was an episode in the Old Testament where, uh, it was given through the sons. And the reason why it, it, uh, uh, land was allotted and passed on and inheritances were given through the sons. That was not to bypass women at any time, but it was always understood that men and women and while they were um, equal in significance and access and all those things, they were distinction of roles and, and operations. And so the women were always provided for when the law was followed. The women were blessed and provided for, but there would be exceptions. And when one of those exceptions came, the, 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 these daughters go to Moses and goes before goes before the Lord, and the Lord says, well, of course, you're going to give them their inheritance. This is how it's going to be. And he 
establishes all of this. But the family unit was the mechanism, the measure, the metric by which everything existed, everything operated by, by, by how you would have been provided for and, and established for. And if that was destroyed, it did not just affect, it did not just affect the man and the woman. It did affect the man and the woman, but it would never, if that was destroyed, it never, and I'm not pointing at Brandon because he's, he's a woman. I've just, I was, I was, I was trying to, a man and a woman. There, there we go. A man and a woman. That's what I'm, I'm looking at there. I was just, the difference. My wife's not in here, so I'm sorry. I was, I was, I don't know what I was doing there. So, but when that union is separated, it affects the generations above it, and it affects the generations below it, and it affected the generations beside it. It affected everything. And so God had such a heart for this. And he was, he was saying that this is everything. This is the family unit. So what was it to, to commit adultery? To commit adultery literally was to take another man's wife or another person's covenant spouse. Adultery was to cause a breach and a defilement in the most intimate of covenants and sacred vows. Note this, that God instituted marriage before he created the church, before he started with church. Marriage is the very first relationship that we see God instituted on this earth. I would prescribe to you today that America is 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 farther gone than a lot of people have been willing to concede because it's been manifest in our families and that's true as a reality there's people in this room that you've walked through hard situations because in the west we got to be careful before we think we're so prideful and we're so great and the west is so great and the rest of the world is so bad because a, a stat i heard this year albert moeller shared a few months ago it's shocking that in america the, there's the highest percentage of a likelihood that children in all of the world today are going to be raised in a home that does does not have a mother and a father figure. They were even saying it's okay if the, the father figure in the home is not their father, but maybe a stepfather uh, or a stepmother. But in America today, more children are living in homes without both a father and a mother figure. Now, we're not talking about the tragedies of death and other kinds of things, but what we're talking about is a cultural breakdown of the home. So before we think we're so great and we're better than every other nation. That's why so much of Islam looks at America, looks down on America and thinks that they're crazy because America, they only see America through the lens of Hollywood. My Lord, please don't judge all of us by what Hollywood puts out there. But the breakdown of all of that, it, 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 they look to them. It, there's other cultures, folks. I'm, I'm saying this is shocking that as we say we're a Christian nation, there are pagan, non-Christian nations that hold family at a higher regard than we do. Now, I, I know I wasn't expecting to get a lot of amens and people run the aisles and shout on this because this is a harsh reality. But be careful. This is not popular preaching. This is not popular talking. But when we lost that, we lost everything. Yeah. 
We lost everything. Now, can it be redeemed? Can it be restored? Absolutely. And that's why I'm praying for a revival. Because I do believe where sin doth abound, grace did much more abound. And I think this is a great time. God put us here for such a time as this for revival. But let's be careful that we don't fall subject to the same thing the Pharisees did that said, look at us. We're so much better than that. The spirit of this law, the paradigm is not just to technically follow the law, but the spirit of this law says not even to let your mind go there. So Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. Look at what he says. He says, you have heard it said that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's right. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her, hath, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So Christ was saying that the paradigm of this, and go back to the context of Christ's day, they're, they're getting divorced for anything. They're unsatisfied, and so they say, well, I want a divorce, divorce and, and they go down, they get the bill, and, and they put their, their spouse away, and they go on for the next one. What Christ was calling them out on, he said, what you're doing is out of your own lust, and it's out of your own passions, and it's out of the lust of the flesh. He said, you're technically found a a loophole to obey the letter of the law, but you are omitting the spirit of the law. You're killing the spirit of the law. You're not letting it get inside of your heart. So look at what he says. Okay. Um, this is extra. This is extra. This isn't in the 10 commandments. What's Christ's prescription for dealing with this harsh reality? He says, and if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee for it's profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now this is not popular teaching. Christ believed in hell. All right. That's offensive right there. There probably will be a day someday where YouTube will not allow that to be on its sight. Sin is offensive. Today, sin is not, cannot be the answer for anything. Well, it's got to be their chemical makeup. And I'm not, I'm not making fun of, of chemical imbalances and all that stuff, but we justify, well, it, 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 you know, we're, we're just evolved basically and we still have animalistic instincts and no, it's sin. And God says, Jesus Christ says, if there's something in your member that is causing you to transgress the law and be separated from God, he says, you ought to be willing to go to the measure. What does he say? And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. He's saying hell is not worth it. Now, why did he say that? You say, so pastor, somebody comes to, you know, should, should I do this? Well, let me ask you this. If you're willing to cut your hand off, then that means you're willing to live without your hand. Then aren't you willing to just not do the thing that your hand would be doing to send you to hell? Can't you just have enough self-control over that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe you can't. But Christ was making the point that this is not worth going to hell over. 
Amen. Okay. So, everybody say praise the Lord. Praise All right. Amen. So, this is good old-fashioned teaching right here. So, is, am I all right? I hope I haven't offended everybody here tonight. Ezekiel, or uh, Exodus chapter number 20, verse number 15. Here's the second shortest commandment. Also, four words. Thou shalt not steal. Look at somebody and say, stop it. Okay, so don't, don't steal. All right, I could just go on to the other commandment, but I don't want to just skip it here. That was pretty self-explanatory. But you've, you, you're catching the theme here of how we unfold this. He's not just saying, uh, he, he, he's making a point of what you're doing. Don't just steal. Look at what he says, to take from someone else their property or their belongings that they either worked for or they inherited. I'm going to read my notes here so that I, don't, that I don't spend too much time on this. When we take from another, okay, we cheat the process of work, labor, and inflict losses in our gain. So two things, when we take we're doing something that we don't rightfully deserve. We haven't earned it. And now we, we not only cheat that process, but we inflict a loss on somebody else for our gain. In this, in this law, God recognizes property rights. Okay? This, this is not, uh, this is an interesting thing here to think about. God recognizes property rights. He recognizes rightful possessions. That someone has the right to use something they worked for, for their own personal advantage. So I'm not trying to be political at all, but there are many times, a lot of times, where politics, no matter what side or what kind of thing, comes in conflict with Scripture. And we have to stand on Scripture. Yes. So Marxism, the evils of Marxism, communism, not only are they you know, trying to extract God, sin is not uh, tolerable or allowed, but also this, they, they would totally not... Um, acknowledge property rights, because if you have something I want, I should be able to have that. God says no. He says you have the right to your own property. Now, the law provided times when there would be a moral obligation to share what you have, especially in abundance. But the sharing then is by motivation and desire of the owner, not of theft. And so we that are without in a particular case can never be justified, hear me, cannot be justified in going and stealing something. Now, this is where the damage of monopolies can come into play because in unrestricted capitalism, there's open greeds and, and it fails. All systems fail because humans are the ones involved and the heart is desperately wicked. And so people are out to make for themselves. Again, you can steal and, and, and block others' opportunities to build for your own just gain. And that would, um, that would offend the spirit of the law 
also. But your shortcut to gain will double someone else's losses. And your shortcut to gain is offensive to both man and God. This is a principle that we don't, we, don't, we don't discuss a lot. When you try to shortcut and circumvent and take from somebody else something you didn't earn or rightfully work for or was inherited or passed down, it is offensive both to man and to God. And the prescription here that he gives in the Old Testament was this, and you can look at it. Later on, uh, uh, Moses would say this, the repayment requirement illustrates how painful the loss can be. So for instance, if you stole an oxen, one ox, if you went and stole an oxen, you were required not to pay back an ox, but you were required to pay back five oxen. The reason why is because when you steal that ox, you took from somebody, not just an entity that existed, but you took from them time, the time and investment of them being able to get the ox, not just to go and pay for it, but for it to grow to maturity, to go through the process to where it can produce. And when you stole from them, what they lost in that was not just they lost the time to build up to that purchase or the growth of that ox, but then they lost the time that they were able to use that ox. And so the compound interest of that ox, how many know you get, you get, a, uh, if, if you're raised on a farm, um, you, you get a couple uh, uh, animals, you're going to end up with more animals. You get what I'm saying here? I mean, that, that's the law of nature here. So you take, you take the oxen away, and you've taken away that opportunity for compound interest. And because of the losses, the law said that if you steal an ox, you have to pay back five times. What's the moral of this law? It's better for you to do the work first time for one ox than it is for you have to do the work later to repay five oxen. Because then, at the end of the day, when you steal, who you're stealing from is you're robbing your own self. Because now you're going to have to work all that time and all that investment, and you're going to have to give that away to repay. There was another thing. If you steal another human being, then you are put to death. So God put different values on things. If you steal another human being, you're put to death. Make no mistake. People have criticized the Bible and the text and said, well, the Bible endorses slavery. Not in the modern context of slavery. When the Bible talks about slavery in the Old Testament, it is talking about people's indebtedness. People who have lost everything or sold everything through uh, ill uh bad situations or through the mishandling of their own life when they have nothing else to give your most valuable commodity is yourself and so slavery there was a way you could purchase your way out of that there, there was never meant to always be suppressed so so when the bible uses that terminology don't do not mistake that for what was taking place in the modern era in the modern era slavery was horrific it was vile it offended god god hated it because modern slavery that we've seen in the last few hundred years was literally the stealing of a human life.
life. It was going and stealing a life, robbing from them, robbing from others. And God says that that has no long suffering. That is to be paid for by the penalty of death. Now, later on, there's another thing. Um, so maybe this is in regards specifically, specifically to stealing. But later on, there was a check and balance in the law, which is why the law is so powerful. What if, what if you were angry? What if you accidentally did something and you caused somebody's eye to be taken out or you caused somebody to lose a tooth? What's our human reaction? Well, you caused me to lose a tooth. So I'm coming back to you and you're going to lose five teeth. Right? And, and so we're going to pay with interest. That's how we do. And, and the law was in there as a protection. And it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Because it said, no, you can't do any more than just take another eye. You are not allowed to take their life. You are not allowed to do anything else. Eye for an eye. The Pharisees interpreted as a command or a demand from God. What God really wanted was healing and forgiveness. Really? Do you really want to go there? But the law was put in there, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, so that man would be limited in his retaliation, and he would only be able to enact what had been approved by God. Thou shalt not steal. Maybe you never stole, but how many times have we tried to cheat the system or take from somebody else or seen someone else suffer loss? No, instead, the Christian prescription is rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. If they are blessed, you ought to be excited about that. Praise God. Don't, don't be glad when your brother and sister is under duress or they go through loss and suffering. That should not be the state of your heart. Commandment number nine. Let's go to verse 16. Everybody say in Jesus name. All right. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. I could spend a lot of time here. This is pretty explanatory. Don't lie. Don't lie. The absolute truthfulness, absolute truthfulness is the foundation of human societies and interaction. If we have no more honesty, then we've lost everything and our society will most certainly crumble. Don't be so afraid by how much they're going to limit uh, uh, speech and truth and everything else. Can I tell you the spirit of Antichrist is already trying to fetter the pulpits but where we should be afraid is when there's no more truth in the streets. Truth is gone and and we would rather believe in a, a lie. The Bible says in the last days that we're going to have itching ears. Just what we want to hear. We don't want to hear truth. I want to hear what I want to hear. Don't even tell me truth. That's the culture and the day and age in which we live. We live in a world where you could say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and it's going to offend somebody. Absolute truthfulness is the foundation. Our civilization will not survive this. We will not survive this as a nation, but the church will survive this. The true church will survive this. So we're not worried about that. But this commandment, when it was originally given, was speaking officially to official testimony. So when you came and you had to give an official testimony, uh, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness. If you bore a false witness, you... Uh, 
would be, uh, uh, you know, under the penalty of death. You could, if you were found to be in the lie, you would have complicit in the very thing that you were lying. I refer back to a sermon I preached a couple months ago, the law of witnesses. There is, uh, uh, and we talked a little bit about that when you were brought before a court, um, the law said that everything had to be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. No single witness could be enough to persecute anyone. And the reason why is because as humanity, we have to recognize the fallibility of our perspective and our perception. We have to recognize our misunderstanding. It doesn't mean that what we're not saying is true, but if we're the only perspective, our perspectives are incomplete. They are finite, not infinite. And so uh, you had to have more than one voice to verify and validate. When you came in front of them, you had to give an honest answer. You could plead the fifth. There was a way. And I say plead the fifth. They didn't have the Fifth Amendment back then. But in our terminology, we would say plead the fifth. There was a way that you could do that. But if the high priest came down and the high priest said to you, if he, uh, if he asked you to tell a truth, a yes or no, or a truth, and he did it by the name of Jehovah, or Yevhe however that word was pronounced, the actual name of God, when he invoked the name of God, you by the law were commanded, you were protected, you had absolute solvency and protection, but you were commanded to tell the truth. And when you did that, if you did not tell the truth at that point, they believed when the high priest invoked that, if you did not tell the truth, that you would drop over and die, that God would smite you, that no one would have to take your life. That's why when Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin, they asked him questions and he answered them nothing until the high priest said, I adjure thee by the living God. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus then was under his own limitations of his own law. And he said, I who speak, I am he. But you know what happened? He didn't die. He didn't fall over. And so that was the biggest testimony that what he was saying was true. And that's why the high priest rent his clothes. When the high priest did that, the high priest was transgressing a law that prohibited him from ever renting his clothes. But the people that stood in that room, it was was a visible testimony that the high priest hasn't offended the law and Jesus Christ has been validated by the law. Amen. What a powerful testimony there. So thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. There's great consequences. And now let's go to commandment number 10. This is the key to the whole of the 10 commandments. And I think I see the light at the end of the tunnel. I think we're going to do this tonight. I'm getting excited right now. Amen. Woo! I had some doubters in here. I'm not going to call any names. I'm not looking at anybody here tonight. But Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. So notice he brings in material. 
And then he goes and says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. So this is the first commandment here that speaks to not our actions, but the intent of our heart. The other nine speak to our actions, but this one prohibits the mental obsession of money and material and also the obsession of others, of other people's affections, of desires, of lust. This one says, thou shalt not covet. It addresses not the action because the action would be the stilling the adultery. It would be the killing. It would be the dishonoring. It would be all of those things, but this speaks to the attitude and the wrongful desires that are at work so often in our heart. If you violate this commandment, it's the first step to breaking the other nine. If you violate this commandment, it, it's a pathway to violate the others. And God speaks to our heart. This commandment testifies clearly that the law was intended to be spiritual and not just technical. Because you can't get around this one. You can't get around this one. You can't come up with different explanations because this one lets us know that the law was more than just a technicality and rules of do's and don'ts. But the law was always intended to touch our heart and speak and testify to our heart. The terrible reality is this, that how we think is who we really are. You can say, I only serve God. I've never, I've never worshipped a graven image. I've never taken his name in vain. I've honored my father and mother. I have not killed. I do not commit adultery or still. I don't lie in a false thing. But when you come to this one, it gets to the heart of all of us. Because it's our envy, our jealousy, our greed, our prides that make us selfish, that make us without love, that make us in rebellion against God and the things of God. This testimony or this commandment testifies that the law is spiritual. Here we find Christ coming in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He said, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. If you don't do more than them, they have proclaimed themselves righteous on a technicality, but they have offended the spirit of the law all throughout. And he said, if your righteousness doesn't get beyond that, he said, you won't enter into the kingdom of heaven either. Can I tell you, it's human nature to reduce what we must do down to technicalities. Even in the apostolic faith, we can do it. 
I go to church. I pay my tithes. I worship. I dress right. I talk right. I don't go to certain places that I should not go. I keep all of these things. And we can stand in the same place as that Pharisee who was praying when others walk in and we look down upon them. Others who come in saying, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And we can say, thank God I'm not like them. Look at how great we are. Look at how great we are. Look at how clean we are. Look at how righteous we are. We don't do any of those things. Paul stood in that same place. He stood there in Romans chapter number 7. Paul gives us insight. Paul says elsewhere, he says, I kept the law. I was of the strictest. Division of the Pharisees. Paul said, I was the strictest adherent, uh, adherent to the law of anyone in Judaism. That was me. I prided myself with that pride. I went and I persecuted the churches. He said, when you ask the law, I kept the law and all those technical things. But look at what he says in verse number 7 of chapter 7 of Romans. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. And he gives us his example. He said, for I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Paul said this, I kept it. I checked the boxes. I, I, I marked through. I had the list done and I was so excited. I, I was happy there was no sin in me, but oh, the air of his way. And then when he, his eyes were open and he saw the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. You can't covet money or material or relationships or people. No lust, no envy, no jealousy, no pride, no greed, no selfishness. And Paul said, then I realized I was an offender of the law. And it was as if I had already done the other things because I offended it in one point. What was Paul teaching? What was he saying? We could read through all of this. But Paul and Christ were saying the same thing. It's the spirit of the law that we miss what did Paul say? What does the writer of Hebrews say? Look at this. The problem. We find a problem because the law doesn't help us. It does not help us. Hebrews 7 and 9. For the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. The law didn't do anything for us except the law proved that we were sinners. The law proved that we were sinners. The law didn't do anything for us. But yet Christ comes and says, I didn't come to destroy it. Why didn't he destroy something that didn't work? Because the purpose of the law was not to change us. The purpose of the law was for us to see that we needed changing. <laughs> 
That's why he says the law didn't make us perfect, but it brought us to Christ. Because when you look at the law, you get to one. I kept that. Two. Got that. Three. Got that. Four. Got it. Five. Six. Seven. Eight. Nine. Almost messed up, but I got that one too. And then you come to commandment number 10 and you realize it's all undone because I'm a sinner as much as if I offended the first Commandment, the law equally presents itself to us, just like the cross of Calvary, letting us know that you need a Savior and I need a Savior. And the only conclusion of living the law is recognizing that I need a Messiah. I need a Savior. I need redemption. I need a change in my heart. That's why Psalm 19 and 7 declares this. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law made nothing perfect, but the law was perfect. And what the law did is it let us realize that I need help. That's all the law was supposed to do is let us realize that I need help. Because what do we do, Brother Brandon, in our own human state? We think, well, I'm better than the next guy. <laughs> well, I'm not as bad as them. Don't we do that? Don't we grade on a scale? Come on, come on. You... Well, I'm just, you know, I, I, at least I didn't do this. And what the law does is it lets us know, no, you need God's grace just as much as the worst sinner needs God's grace. And that's why Christ was so offended by the Pharisee that stood over there and said, thank God I'm not like this sinner. Christ's story says he should have been like that sinner. Because what the law does, you don't live for God and all of a sudden think, well, I'm better than everybody else. Let's read it. We come to our close. We come to our conclusion with this. I think we have time. Let's go to Romans chapter number 7. Maybe we can shed light a little bit on some passages that maybe you've read and not understand. But Paul's talking about the purpose of the law was not to change us. It was just to make us realize that we needed changing. And when we're changed, we no longer then need the law because the change has already been made in us. If you're not going to break the rule, you don't need the rule. You don't need the rule book. And this is what Paul was saying. Look at the example that he uses. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as she liveth. But if the husband is dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she's free from that law so that she is no adulteress. Though she be married to another man. He was talking about how death broke the covenant. Therefore, my brethren, he takes that same analogy. Therefore, thy, br my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. You know, we don't have to do all the things in the sacraments and everything that the law tells us to do. 
We don't have to follow all those things. You know why we don't have to worry about, am I wearing linen and wool together? Am I wearing all those things? You know, the priests were prohibited when they ministered from wearing wool because it would make them sweat. You know, we don't have to follow the dietary laws and all those things because those were meant to show you you need help to lead you to Christ. He says, but when we're in the body of Christ, our spiritual man is changed. We don't need those things to teach us anymore because we're already here. And so you're dead to the law by the body of Christ that ye should be married to another, even to him, Christ, who is raised from the dead that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held, we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So Paul's not saying the law was horrible. He's saying, no, the spirit should be working in us. What happens is when the church regresses and we can't have love for one another, but we justify ourselves because we're not killing one another. Well, I'm not killing anybody. But man, we sure don't leave our gift on an altar and go resolve issues before we come back and worship God. And I wonder how many times God's saying to us, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He's saying, is it, is it bad? Is it horrible? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. He's saying, I was alive because I didn't know I was dead. Uh, but when the commandment came, sin revived. All of a sudden, I knew I was an offender. And I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. There was no hope. Why was it unto death? Because there was no change in the spiritual man. I needed help. I needed a savior. There was no change in who I was. And he said, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it, it slew me. So now I'm offending the law. So he was trying to do what? How did he compensate? He tried to compensate just like the Pharisees did. They tried to compensate by works. Can, can, can anybody see this play out? You can do this in your life today. Well, if I just pray enough, or if I just give enough, or if I just do enough, you're trying to achieve it. No, let God's spirit make the change in you. You can't pray enough. You can't give enough. You can't worship enough. You can't do enough right stuff. What you need is the empowerment and the, the powerful change transformation of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You need an altar. You need a cross. You need an infilling of something that you can't work in your own life. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. When was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. He's saying the law was intended to make us miserable because it was intended to show us how much we needed God. For we know that the law is spiritual. Here it is. It's spiritual. But I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. 
I think we can all stand in good company there. I try and I don't do it. I say I'm not going to do this and I do it. And he goes on and he says, If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. I affirm the law because of my sin, because of what's in my heart, because of what's in my life. I affirm that the law is perfect. And he goes on and he said, Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good I find not. I want to do it, but I make this mistake. I constantly sin. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good. Evil is present with me for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me down into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And he gets to this place where he asks a rhetorical question. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You know what he's saying? I've been filled with the Spirit, but I still, live in the, I still live with the flesh. And I still have to shake off this flesh. That's why Paul said, I die daily. Paul is not making, by the way, an excuse for transgression against the Spirit of the law. Paul is not saying, well, I'm, I'm just a sinner. There's nothing I can do. No, he's saying, I overcome it by the power of the Holy Ghost. Look at what he says. I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. He was acknowledging, yes, someday we're going to be saved and delivered from this. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Look at what he says in verse 8. There is therefore, somebody say it, now, now, not in the future, not long, now, right now, there is therefore now no condemnation. Ha. What does he say to them which are in Christ? Why? Because when we're in Christ... We don't walk after the flesh. And when we're not walking after the flesh, we're not transgressing against the spirit of the law. But he says, but we walk after the spirit for the law, the spirit of life in Christ hath made me free. Praise God. Somebody thank the Lord. Made me free. What? From the law of sin and death. Why is this significant? Because what's the title of our series? Because... I am. I am. God gave the commandments, the Ten Commandments. And he said, you're going to do this. Why are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? Because I am. Remember? Right. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee up from out of the land of Egypt. You know how you're going to be able to keep the law? I am. I am. Yes. <laughs> if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. And here he goes. He said, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, 
but after the Spirit. For they that are the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded, here it is, is life and peace. So here, if you stopped, if we didn't read chapter 8 and you just read chapter 7, you'd think, oh man, well, Paul's sinning every day too. I'm still sinning every day too. Paul says, oh no. He said, no, because I've been born in Christ, because I am through the Spirit of God, I don't transgress the law. I keep the law by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now I have to walk in that spirit every day. He said, I die daily. I have to live in that spirit. But when I live in the spirit, he said here, he said, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit for to be carnally minded is death. Spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal man is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can it be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Stand together with me. I close with this. But ye are not in the flesh. What? Read this. But in the Spirit. Come on, is anybody thankful for this? I'm in the Spirit. I'm not in the flesh. I'm in the Spirit. And he says, if it so be, how? That the Spirit of God dwell in you. Right there, Brother Philip, there's testimony. I need the Spirit of God in me. I, I need the Spirit of God inside of me. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You think the Holy Ghost is just an auxiliary option? You think the Holy Ghost is just an optional accessory for a Christian life? I'm going to tell you no. You've got to have the Holy Ghost. You need the Holy Ghost. I need the Holy Ghost. And I'm not just talking, it's not just some special gift just for you to be able to do certain things. No, the gift of the Holy Ghost is what gives you strength to be able to walk in the Spirit, to be able to not fulfill the lust of the flesh, not fulfill all of those things that the law has spoken against us. And he says, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead, here it is, here's our eternal hope, shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwell in you. So not only do I need the Spirit of God in my life to over, overcome sin, but it's the Spirit of God that is my ticket to the resurrection. I need the Holy Ghost because I am. Because I am. He said, because I am, you can do it. Come on, turn to somebody and say, you can live for God. Come on, tell them. You can live for God, but you can't do it on your own works. You can't do it on your own strength. You've got to have the power of the Holy Ghost. Come on, can we lift our hands toward heaven right now, Lord? I thank you.